Well, when Elizabeth and I were at seminary, we had some good friends that we liked to hang out with a lot, and we would invite each other over to each other's houses, and especially early on, I mean, when you're really good friends, you don't always ask. Typically, you still do, but it's more relaxed. But initially, it was, oh, well, thank you so much for the invitation, and husbands, if your wife hasn't trained you to do this yet, the polite response is, do you know what it is, husbands? Thank you. What can we bring, right? And so in my training, I was learning to say, oh, thank you for the invitation. What can we bring? And their response most of the time over and over and over again was, make sure you bring a good attitude. I said, well, no, really? No, that's it. We don't want you to bring anything. Just bring a good attitude. And so I remember going home to Elizabeth, what do they want us to bring? A good attitude. Then we scratching our heads. Does that mean that we have a bad attitude? I hope it doesn't mean that we have a bad attitude, but attitude's important. Well, we better make sure that when we go, we have our good attitude to bring to this event. Attitude. It can make quite the difference, can't it? Now, here's a picture of somebody that I like to think has a good attitude, opposed to somebody that has, can we say, a bad attitude? Can I just ask you very plainly? Who do you prefer to hang out with? Who do you like to do things with? Who are your closest friends? Those that have a good attitude or those that have a bad attitude? I don't know about you. I'd rather be around people that have a good attitude as opposed to the bad attitude because it rubs off on you, doesn't it? And our attitude is significant. How we approach life or the difficulties of life, the stresses of life so often have a connection with our attitude. In fact, what difference would it make if you chose right now at this moment, regardless of what happens, because of Jesus' love and and his living uh, life on this earth and his sacrifice in my behalf, the fact that he raised from the dead and he's promised me eternal life, what if I just decided because of those things, no matter what else happens to me in this life, I'm going to have a good attitude. Would that change your life? I just got in a car accident today. That's okay. Jesus still loves me. Or you can grumble, I can't believe, you know, this guy is doing like this, all upset. Is that going to change your car and fix it? No. Is it going to have a difference on you? Yes. Is the situation going to still have to be dealt with? Yes. So why not have a good attitude? Attitude, if we define it, says predisposition or a tendency to respond positively or negatively towards a certain idea, object, person, or situation. So how's your attitude this morning? Did you have a bad attitude on the way to church? I hope not. Attitude. I also want to ask this question. Why was Joseph so great? You look throughout the book of Genesis. No other figure is given anywhere close to the number of chapters, even though we have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so on. Joseph gets more than all of them. What makes Joseph so great? He never performed a miracle. He never walked on water. He never wrote any of Holy Scripture. He did interpret some dreams by God's help. But what really made Joseph great? Was it his good looks? We're told he was good looking. Maybe it was his charisma, his talent. Maybe it's because he was smarter than everybody else. Or was it something else? As we've been studying his life for many weeks, I would submit to you this answer. He was great because of his faith in God which manifests itself in a magnanimous attitude towards others and his magnificent attitude towards difficulties. Would you agree to that? Attitude. And you might question attitude. Yes, a strong faith leads to a good 
attitude, a good outlook, a good response to the trials and challenges of life. A strong faith allows God to be God and to recognize that ultimately he is in control. Therefore, I don't have to stress. I don't have to be angry or bitter or resentful or distressed because God's in control. And in the story of Joseph, we find so many of these pieces, jealousy and deceit and plots of murder and lying and covering up, slavery, temptation, abandonment, testing. But through it all, we find a man who has an incredible faith in God. God's power, God's authority, and God's sovereignty. And therefore, he chooses to deal with life's challenges and life's loss and failures and disappointments with patience and kindness, with grace and perseverance. Joseph's faith gave him an attitude of greatness. And we're going to pick up our story today in Genesis chapter 43. And we left off last time in verse 14, I believe. Last time we saw Jacob with a poor attitude. His sons are accused of being spies, so they keep Simeon as a prisoner, you may recall. They also find their money that they came to pay for the, the grain. They find it in their sacks. And if they want more grain, they are told that Benjamin will have to come back with them to prove that they're not spies. And so Jacob, the patriarch of the family, who could have said, well, let's trust God for answers, boys. In fact, why don't we kneel down right now and pray? Doesn't do that. Instead, he said, Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. Now they want Benjamin. Everything is against me. You remember that? But after some convincing from Judah, who is willing to be surety for Benjamin, Jacob relents and gives his blessings. And to combat their hunger, they go off again to return to Egypt. They have many purposes in this trip. One is to be honest and return the money. Another is to prove that they're not spies. A third reason would be to ransom Simeon, who's been there in the dungeon for however many weeks or months. And, of course, they need more food. The family needs more food. They're also loaded with gifts to hopefully help this discouraging situation. And so this is where we pick up the story. Verse 15 of chapter 43 of Genesis, we read, So the men took that present and Benjamin, and they took double money in their hand and arose and went down to Egypt. I wonder what they were conversing about, what they were talking about. This wasn't the ideal situation with which to go ask for grain. They've done everything they know to do, but still, this is a lot of unknowns, a lot of stress. What's going to happen? And to finish the verse, it says, and they stood before Joseph. I imagine Joseph at that moment had to remain calm. How far they stood, it doesn't tell us. I te seem to get the idea that maybe they're a little bit a ways off because later he's going to ask to see Benjamin up closer and it's going to have an impact on him. But he sees, I imagine he's counting. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Is that Benjamin? Is that the little lad? My old playmate? Could that be him? But he has to remain calm. Verse 16, when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of the house, take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready for these men will dine with me at noon. Then the man did as Joseph ordered and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. Verse 18, now the men were afraid. 
I imagine guilt has something to do with this. And their anxiety is being heightened. It says they are afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house and they said, it is because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time that we brought in so that he may make case against us and seize us to take us as slaves with our donkeys. Ironically, the very thing that they did to their brother Joseph, now they're fearful of that coming back to them like a boomerang. We're going to be slaves And so when they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of the house and said, psst, come here, come here, come here. Oh, sir, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. But it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sack and there each man's money was in the mouth of the sack, our money in full weight. And we have brought it back. Whatever you have planned, we're all nervous, we're anxious, we're worried. I think I know what this is about. And we brought it back. Here it is. And I love the response of the steward. Verse 23, the steward said, peace be with you. It's really the Hebrew term, shalom. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Interestingly, this, who we would assume to be secular steward, has a more vertical perspective, if you will, than the brothers do. Calm down, be at peace, be at ease. God blessed you. I had your money. You just don't know that I gave it back. Then he brought Simeon out to them. So the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water and washed their feet and gave their donkeys feed. Then they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they would eat bread there. Now, this is strange. We're going to eat bread in the governor's house? I mean, we're not dressed for this. We've just come from this long journey. We're dusty and hot and, well, stinky. We're in sandals. Everybody here is dressed, well, really nice. And we're going to dine with the governor like this? This is uncomfortable. Not to mention, why? And then it says, as we continue on in this story, and when Joseph came home, see, uh, we in verse 26, when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house and bowed down before him to the earth. Again, fulfillment of prophecy. Then he asked them about their well-being. And he said, is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? And they answered, your servant, our father, is in good health. And he is still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. Then he lifted his eyes, he being Joseph, and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. And he said, is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? This was the only brother of which Joseph was totally related. Others were only half-brothers, you recall. But this was a direct connection with his mother, Rachel. He remembers him as a boy. Now he's some handsome 30-something. And Joseph says, grace, or sorry, God be gracious to you, my son. And in verse 30, we read, now his heart yearned for his brother. So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. His heart yearned. That's the same expression used to describe the mother who has a dying child. You remember the two mothers and one fell asleep and and killed her child in the night and they're arguing, disputing over Solomon. And Solomon says, I know what I'll do. I'll chop the baby in half. And the real mother, it says her heart yearned within her because that's her child. And she says, okay, give it to her. Same word. Suddenly this great and powerful man, strong hearted and efficient prime minister of a mighty nation collapses inside and he can no longer restrain his emotion 22 years or more since he has seen his childhood companion and playmate now he's a grown man all the years 
passed in review. All the loneliness, all the loss, all the seasons and birthdays and significant occasions without family. It was too much to contain. And he has to accuse himself to a quiet place. I just imagine himself throwing himself on his bed and just sobbing in deep, great sobs. Without warning, he became a little boy again, a little boy who missed his mom and his dad and what might have been. It reminds me of other great men who have their weak moments. Do you remember David? When he lost his precious son, Absalom, he cried, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. Would I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Job, who had lost everything, including his children and his health, cried out to God, let the day perish on which I was to be born, and the night which said, a boy is conceived. Why did I not die at birth, Job said. Elijah, after God's great victory against the prophets of Baal, became horribly discouraged and prayed that he might die. He says this, it is enough now, O Lord. Take my life, for I am not better than my father's. We could look at Moses when he questioned God and said, why, God, have you been so hard on thy servant? And why have I not found favor in thy sight that thou hast laid the burden of all these people on me? It is too burdensome for me. Please kill me at once, Moses says. Folks, these are all giants of the faith. Yet we see even Giants of faith, at times, simply implode emotionally and cry out to their God. Maybe you can relate, and if so, you're in good company. But the good news is, in those moments, God doesn't reprove us for our lack of faith or our weakness or our poor logic. Rather, God comforts us. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. That's the God that we serve. When we cry out to him in our challenging moments, most challenging moments, when we're overwhelmed, when the tears are flowing, God is there to comfort. And so he composes himself, and he comes back, says he washed his face in verse 31, he restrained himself, and he said, serve the bread, bring the food. Verse 32, so they set him a place by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves. Three different tables, because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews, and that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the first according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. That's another way of saying in order of birth. And the men looked in astonishment at one another. How can this be? There's 11 of us, and we're all seated in birth order. You know how many combinations you can have with 11 individuals? You don't have to take the time. I've already done it for you. Actually, somebody else did, and I just borrowed it. 39,917,000 different ways to seat 11 people at a table. Don't believe me, ask Phil Wilhelm. He loves these kind of things. They're astonished. They're bewildered. They don't know what to think of it. And then verse 34, he took servings to them from before him, but Benjamin's serving was five times as much as the others. Five times as much? So imagine it, they're serving salads and Loma Linda steak patties and mashed potatoes and gravy, pesto pasta, rolls with jam, a big glass of fresh fruit juice. But Benjamin, he gets five salads, five servings of Loma Linda steak patties, five servings of mashed potatoes and gravy, five servings of pesto, five rolls with jam, five glasses of fresh fruit juice. And Joseph's at another table, but he's certainly listening to their Hebrew conversation. He knows that 
Benjamin has probably been favored, much like he was favored. Are they angry? Are they upset? Are they bitter? Will they lash out? Will they say something quietly under their breath? Joseph is listening, but they don't. In fact, the end of verse 34 says, so they drank and were merry with him. They passed the test. Good luck, Benjamin. That's a lot of Loma Linda steak patties. And so Joseph is pleased. Their fear of what the governor was up to, their anxiety, was again displaced by grace. Again, Joseph's life offers a magnificent portrayal of the grace of God as he came to rescue in the person of his son, Jesus. So many of us, like Joseph's brothers, feel guilty and distant and fearing the worst from God, only to have him demonstrate incredible generosity and mercy. The one who was rejected is the same one who worked so hard to get us reunited with him. Friends, that's God, and that's grace. And so we move on to chapter 44. We're covering a lot of scripture today, but all of this seems to go together. I can't seem to split it up, so we keep going. And he commanded the steward of his house, this is Joseph, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry. Load them to the brim and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Same song, second verse. Also put my cup, this silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his grain money. So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. As soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. And it says, when they had gone out of the city, imagine, whew, our grain sacks are full. We're all accounted for. Simeon is here. Benjamin is here. It's only good news, and we're headed home. Just like the horse that doesn't want to go away from the barn, but you turn him back to the barn, and he's ready to go. And so it's laughing, it's joking, it's, it's no longer the anxiety, but just as they make their way out of the city, and we're not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, get up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is this the one from which my Lord drinks and with which he indeed practices divination? You have done evil in so doing. Now, divination we know to be an abomination. That's basically like a palm reading type thing. They would put different uh, oils or things in this cup and swirl it around, and this is what the gods are saying, and so on and so forth. Joseph didn't do that. I don't know why he puts this as part of the thing. Maybe he's just trying to maintain his disguise. Maybe he's trying to mess with their minds a little bit about this guy who's able to order them in order of their birth. We don't know, but this is the message that he gives them. So the steward, verse 6, overtook them, and he spoke to them these same words that we just read. And they, the brothers, said to him, why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servants should do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? And they're so certain that they have not done anything. You're casting blame on us falsely. That one of them rashly says, Maybe it's Reuben. He tends to be rash, but it doesn't tell us. With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. That's how confident they are. And he, the steward said, now also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave. We don't have to kill anybody here. You're all strapping young men. We could use, okay, so we'll make him a slave and the rest of you shall be blameless, he says. Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground. Let's get this over with. And each opened his sack. So he searched and he began with the oldest and left off with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. They are stunned. 
the one thing that couldn't happen, the one thing they promised dad would never happen, has just happened. They tore their clothes, and each man loaded his donkey, returned to their father Jacob. Is that how it reads? I mean, isn't that how they've done it before? Abandon the favored son? Look out for number one? Sorry, dad. Tough luck. No respect for dad? No, they all go back. Hey, if we don't go back without Benjamin, we're in major trouble. And we can't just desert Benjamin like that. And so they all go back. Verse 14, so Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there. And they fell before him on the ground. And Joseph said to them, what deed is this you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? Again, building the tension. How does this man know? And so on. It doesn't say he did. It just says he can as others in that society probably did. Anyway, Judah speaks up now in verse 16. What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquities of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and also, uh, and he also with whom the cup has been found. What a confession by Judah. He's not attempting to justify himself, nor does he try and pass the blame. He himself knows that he didn't do this. But they don't turn to Benjamin. They don't reject him as they did Joseph. Judah says, honestly, we are guilty. And somehow I think his confession is going back over 20 years. We're guilty, referring to those days that they sold off their brother Joseph. Verse 17, but he said, this is Joseph now, far be it from me that I should uh, do so. The man whom the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go in peace to your father. There's the out, offered again. You're free to go. But Benjamin stays. Verse 18, then Judah came near to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing. And do not let your anger burn against your servant. Just allow me to explain, please. For you're even like Pharaoh. Verse 19, my Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man and a child of his old age who is young. His brother is dead and he alone is left of his mother's children and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may see, set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. So it was when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, finally, go back and buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down. For we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons and that one went out from me. And I said, surely he is torn to pieces and I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. But therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up with the lad's life, It will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us that he will die. So your servant will bring down the gray hair of your servant on your father with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety. 
I myself became surety for the lad to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame for my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go back with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father? What a heartfelt plea from Judah. The same one that advocated, what profit is it for us to kill Joseph? Let's sell him as a slave. At least we can get something. Then we'll go to 7-Eleven and all split ice cream. That's a great idea. It was blatant disrespect to his brother. It was blatant disrespect to his father. This was Judah's rash idea. And the words... From so long ago, I imagine still plagued him. But here and now he's pleading for his younger brother on behalf of his father. He cannot bear the guilt of something like this all over again. He cannot imagine telling his father again. So no, this is not the same man. He's changed. And so then it happens. Chapter 45, the long-awaited chapter. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood before him. And he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept out loud. And the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. And then Joseph said to his brothers, there's no interpreter now. He's speaking in their language. And he says, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed in his presence. And Joseph said, please come near to me. The word here means not just close in proximity, embrace. It means maybe even check out my face and my features. It's me, come close. So they came near and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But right on the heels, but now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. How gracious a response. Don't be afraid. Don't be angry at yourself. Don't beat yourself up. It's me. I am Joseph. And I, I know what you did, but God is the one that sent me here to preserve life. What a gracious statement. But he's not done. For these two years, the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. Verse 7, and God, for the second time, sent me before you to preserve a posterity or really the word is a remnant for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but for the third time, but God. Friends, those words change everything. Joseph doesn't scold them. He's not concerned with revenge. Don't you know what you put me through? There's none of that. Rather, he says, don't be angry with yourselves. God did this. Friends, Joseph never could have spoken such words of reassurance if he had not fully forgiven his brothers. You cannot fully embrace a person you've not forgiven. You didn't send me here, he says. God did. It was our sovereign Lord that saw far into the future and he saw the needs of the world and chose me to be his personal messenger to avert this famine crisis and to preserve a remnant of his people. How sad if the story of God's faithful remnant would have died in the desert and the Bible end in Genesis. No longer a remnant living. They just became extinct. They petered out. No longer a human being on the planet that honored God. No longer a human to share the love of Christ to a dying world. But God, 
God sent me here to preserve life. Friends, that's it. forever been the call of the remnant, to preserve life, to call people back to Jesus like Joseph is calling his brothers back and his loving ways of protection and success and joy. That's what the remnant do. They call people back to fear God, to give glory to him, to prepare for the judgment, not in fear, but in Christ, to worship him as our God and as our creator. You might recall, even as we fast forward several chapters, when Jacob comes and so on and so forth, and Jacob passes away, the brothers then again relapse back into fear. And this is what they say then in Genesis 50, verse 18 to 20. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before Joseph. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. The new King James says, you intended evil, but God intended it for good. Friends, I don't know what memories haunt you. I don't know what pain you live with because of someone else's wrongdoing. I imagine everyone here has suffered in the hands of someone. You've been treated badly. You were taken advantage of. You were manipulated. And you remember the wrong. You remember the unfair treatment, the torturous trauma, the rejection. Evil was done to you. It was meant to be evil. There's no denying it. The person deliberately hurt you. They sold you as a slave. They wanted you dead. Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for evil. There was nothing good in your motives but God. Here, Joseph allowed his theology to eclipse his human emotions and unfair treatment. And he says it over and over and over again. God sent me to preserve life, he says in verse five. God sent me to preserve a remnant, he says in verse seven. It was not you who sent me, but God in verse eight. And then in verse nine, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. God has done this. Friends, this is a spiritual attitude of greatness. We can go through the Sabbath motions. We can carry out the religious exercises. We can put a Bible under our arms. We can sing the songs from memory. Yet we can still hold grudges against the people that have wronged us. But that's not God's way. Here he shows us the right way. The example of Joseph, who in spite of being wronged, horribly wronged, he acts with integrity and mercy and grace and generosity and unselfishness. And look how deeply he cares for them. Back here in in Genesis, verse 45, verse 11, he says, I will provide for you. There's five more years of famine. Come here. Uh, Verse 10, you shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near to me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks, your herds, and all that you have that I may provide for you. That's how deeply he cares. And then we pick up the story and he fell, verse 14, on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And after this, his brothers talked with him. What did they talk about? What did they say? We don't know fully, but I imagine as soon as they got into the blubbering, I'm so sorry we were wrong. No, 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 that's in the past. I've forgiven you for that. We're moving forward. You meant it for, for evil, but God intended it for good. And you know the story, Pharaoh finds out about it. He says, bring them here. I'll give them the best of the land. He sends them carts. He sends them men. And he basically says, leave all of your junk out there in the desert. You're going to start all over. I'm going to give you the best of everything that we have. 
And he gave all of them to each man, changes of garments, verse 22. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver, five changes of garments. And he sent to his father these things, 10 donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and food for his father for the journey. So he sent his his brothers away and they departed. And he said to them, see that you do not become troubled along the way. Hey guys, I I have an idea what's going to happen when you leave. Don't. Don't go there. Don't play the blame game. Don't beat yourselves up. Don't be angry with yourselves. God had a plan in this to preserve life for his remnant. Go get dad. Go get the kids, the wives, the grandkids. I want to meet them all and come back quick. Friends, greatness is revealed mainly in our attitudes. If you're under the impression that you're going to be great because of some accomplishment you've achieved but harbor a wrong attitude, you're in for a terrible jolt. Greatness comes in the sweet spirit attitude of humility and forgiveness towards your fellow man. You can do a million things right, but if you have the wrong attitude, nobody cares. Thomas Jefferson said it this way, when the heart is right, the feet are swift. Often the reasons that we're sluggish in carrying out the application of God's truth is that our heart isn't right. And there's dozens of possibilities for why the heart isn't right. The person never paid you back what they owed you. person ran out on you and divorced you. The cancer in your own body the health issue that encroaches every aspect of your life. Maybe God took your mate. Your now grown child took advantage of you. The parent that abused or neglected you, the boss or teacher that failed you. And we could go on and on and on. Friends, it takes God to make the heart right. When I have a wrong attitude, I look at life humanly. But when I have the right attitude, I look at life divinely. I submit that Joseph was great because of his God-given attitude. Let me flesh that out a bit. When I'm able by faith to see God's plan in my location, my attitude will be right. What does that mean? What did Joseph say? God sent me, God sent me, God sent me. Not until you can relax and see God in your present location will you be useful to him. Secondly, when I'm able by faith to sense God's hand in my situation, my attitude will be right. Don't begin the day gritting your teeth, asking, why do I have to stay in this situation? Instead, I believe that he made me the way that I am and put me where I am to do what he planned for me to do. It's a difference in attitude, but it's significant. And you don't wait for your situation to change to put your heart into your work. It's called blooming where you're planted. There's nothing like an attitude of gratitude to free us up. And thirdly, when I'm able by faith In case you missed it, all of these are by faith and by God's grace. But when I'm able by faith to accept both location and situation as good, even when there's been evil in the process, my attitude will be right. When I can say with Joseph, you intended it for evil, but God meant it for good, then I become a trophy of grace. I have to admit to you, these are some things that I've been struggling with, having or accepting my location and my situation. Lord, why did you give us a special needs child? I mean, we love James to death. He's just as sweet as he can be. But you want him to grow. You want him to mature. And half a year, he'll be six. And the last few months, and it's gotten significantly better, and I praise the Lord for that, but there was the hardest patch we've had with James yet, throwing up on everything and everybody, ticking time bomb, didn't know when it was going to happen. And to be able by faith to accept location and situation. It's a lot easier to say and question, Lord, my family could be a lot better off. My ministry could be a lot better off. My marriage, all these other things. 
We could be more efficient for the cause of Christ. We could do more, and on and on and on. Why would you allow something like this to impact our family in this way? But to be able to say with Joseph, you intended it for evil. That's what he said to his brothers. But God meant it for good. I know God didn't cause James to be this way. The devil did this thing. He's the one that came and sowed this awful seed, and he intended it for evil. But God says, I will use it for good. Don't be filled with anger or resentment or bitterness. Just follow my plan. And just because you don't understand. I mean, if I did understand, would that change the situation? It really wouldn't. If I'm anger and bitter, does that change the situation? It really doesn't, only to make it worse. So to accept both location and situation, even when there's been evil in the process, and say, Lord, you're in control. This is your plan. This is your ministry. This is your family. This is your timetable. I just submit to that, and I, by faith, am going to choose to have a good attitude. It frees you up to do ministry, to enjoy life, to see the blessings of life, to see the graces of God, to see a church family that's wrapped their arms around us and supported us immensely. Philippians 2, 5 to 11. I don't have it on the PowerPoint. Too many words to try and fit, and I was running out of time. But you know the verse as well. To have the attitude, not of Joseph, but to have the attitude of Christ. Yes, Joseph was like Christ, but ultimately to have the attitude of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, let this mind, let this attitude, and let even implies allow this attitude to be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very form of God, did not consider it to be uh, robbery, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Look for parallels with Joseph. But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant or slave and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Even here in the prison, if I rot here, I'm gonna be faithful, I'm gonna be obedient, I'm gonna blossom where I'm planted. I'm going to accept my location and my situation, even when evil's been done to me, even to death on the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those in the earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Sometimes you have to be brought low for God's purposes to prevail. Jesus was brought lower than low, but his purpose has prevailed. How do you endure the trials of this life? By having the attitude of Jesus. One more verse, Hebrews 12, verse one and two. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, this is following Hebrews 11, the faith chapter. Joseph is one of the witnesses says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. That's the key. The author and finisher of our faith, who, now speaking of Jesus, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What was the joy that was set before him? Friends, it was you. It was your face. He was spending eternity with you in the midst of that pit, in the midst of the darkest hour of his existence, his joy of seeing you forever. That was the secret that allowed him to endure the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, we are called to walk by faith. Keep looking unto Jesus. 
the author and finisher of our faith, and ask him, in spite of life's circumstances, to give you the right attitude, to accept your location, to accept your situation, and by faith and by his grace say, somebody meant it for evil, but God will use it for good. God sent me here. God is going to use this wrong to accomplish his purpose, to preserve life, to prepare a faithful remnant to meet him. And in that joy that was set before Jesus, in that joy of a better day with him, in that joy of life eternal with our best friend Jesus, I too, you too, can endure your cross. John Newton, the same guy who wrote Amazing Grace, he wrote another hymn. I'm just going to read it to you as a poem. This is a portion of it. Maybe you're familiar with it. It says, how tedious and tasteless the hours when Jesus no longer I see. Sweet prospects, sweet birds, and sweet flowers have all lost their sweetness to me. The midsummer sun shines but dim. The fields strive in vain to look gray. But when I am happy in him, December is as pleasant as May. That's how Joseph made it, from the pit to the palace. And it's the same way you and I make it. The only way out of this pit is his way. The only solution to bitterness is his grace. And so I ask you, don't let your location or your situation become frustrating assignments so that life becomes a barren, cold, lifeless December. Don't get me wrong, I love December. If it was my poem, I would have said January. That's when the depression sets in. December's wonderful. But like Joseph, find happiness in the grind of life. By faith, like Jesus, let the joy set before you allow you to endure. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you. Truly great is your faithfulness to us. Lord, everyone here has things that have happened to them, are happening to them, ways that they have been mistreated when evil has been done to them. But Lord, I pray that you will give us the attitude and the theological framework to view things like Joseph did, ultimately to view things like Jesus did, like you do, to let this mind of Christ be in us and to see past those offenses and to say, God is in this. God will use this to God be the glory. May we trust you more fully today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.